well, we're finally going to have our Christmas sermon today. I've been, you know, I'm not going to let this go. This sermon will be preached. Um, We missed it because of the snow. And then last week we had the testimony. So today, on January 9th, is the Christmas sermon. And I hope it's as exciting for you as it is for me. Um, Sometimes it's hard to decide what to preach on Christmas. This year I had decided early and been thinking about it. And so here's our topic. If Jesus really is God the Son, which we clearly teach He is, and we clearly believe He is, but if He is, then what would we expect reality to look like as, as He was born and lived? So let's match expectation to reality. Let's check our belief that Jesus is God the Son by verifying with reality if it matches or not. So what would we expect his life to look like if he was indeed God the Son? So I think I have like six categories, five or six, and I want to go through each one at a time. They're kind of in the order of most important to least important, but none of them are unimportant. So let's start with number one. If Jesus is indeed God the Son, I would expect Jesus to have a spectacularly special birth. Now, I tried to use some big words to make it sound even more important than just his birth. A spectacularly special birth. If God is going to become a human and is going to be born, it should not be an ordinary birth. It should be able to be witnessed, able to be seen, able to be identified. There should be things about it that are not true of any other birth. And I want to mention some of those. So A in your notes, let's start with his birthplace. Now, I could have predicted where my children would be born because they were all born in the hospital that arrangements were made. So, you know, three or four months before they were born, I could have prophesied where they would be born and had a fairly likely chance that that would come true. But the prophecy of Jesus' birth was more than 400 years earlier. And so a 400-year gap between the prophecy he'll be born in Bethlehem and the fact that he was born in Bethlehem makes his birth special. The fact that he was born of a virgin makes him very special. The fact that that, uh, Mary never recanted her story. Joseph never recanted his story. The visitations of the angels, their purity, their righteous living. This is special. No other person has ever been born of a virgin. No, no other birth has happened like that. That was also prophesied in, in Isaiah. His trip to Egypt was prophesied. Why would a little boy born in Jerusalem during a census leave town and not go home, but instead go to Egypt? Why would that take place? That's a very odd thing to prophesy, but he did go to Egypt. He did go to Egypt because his life was in danger. His royal descent was prophesied. Just just very quickly, it's very important that you realize that both Joseph and Mary were of the line of David. And the Messiah had to be from the line of David. And and for some that would say, well, Joseph's not his real father, he's he's an adopted father, there's the bloodline of Mary. And for those that would say, well, Mary's line didn't count because she, she wasn't a man, well, there's Joseph. And an adoption carried as much weight and even more weight than, than an actual birth. 
So he had the kingly line of David, and as a matter of fact, there's some people who argue, and I can't find a flaw in their argument, that if the line of David had continued, if Israel was still having kings on the throne, that Joseph would have been in line for the throne, that he would have actually been a male in the family in the line for the throne. That's not even a stretch. That Jesus being Joseph's son would have had a claim to the throne. And there was a there was a, a curse put on David's line when there was an evil king. And that evil king's curse was that you will never have any children on the throne. The adoption ended that curse. The adoption of Jesus carrying on the family line made him eligible to be on the throne. And the blood of, of Mary made him eligible. So his royal descent was prophesied. It was also prophesied that he'd live in Nazareth, which he did. And, and, and all these things were fulfilled. Now, I want to go back to Bethlehem, Egypt, and Nazareth. If you were a student of the Old Testament back in the day, and you were studying the Messiah, and you came across these three prophecies, these three prophecies that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, that's the one they focused on. There was a prophecy that he would come out of Egypt. That was very confusing, because how in the world is that going to happen? And then there was the prophecy that he would be called a Nazarite. Or he would be a resident of Nazareth. How can he be born in Bethlehem, coming out of Egypt, and be a resident of Nazareth? Looking forward, that's very confusing. Looking forward, that would be hard to work out. So what they did was they focused on the prophecy that was easiest to identify and watch, that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Looking back, it fits together very nicely. And it, and it adds to the specialness of Jesus' birth that... Three seemingly contradicting prophecies were given that were all fulfilled. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He fled to Egypt as a toddler. Then when it was safe, he came back, thus coming out of Egypt. And they settled in Nazareth. He grew up as a Nazarite, as a resident of Nazareth. So that was just a few of the prophecies. There's many, many more prophecies. But what makes his birth spectacularly special is the prophecy that surrounded it and the detail by which it was fulfilled. That is probably enough about his birth, but there's actually more I want to mention. So B, this event, the event of his birth, was marked by angels. Now, angels were not in the habit of appearing. Matter of fact, for 400 years, it's called the, the, the dark time or the silent time. The Israelites had not heard from God for 400 years. No prophet had spoken, no angel had delivered a message, God had not intervened on their behalf. For 400 years, it had been silent. And all of a sudden, angels start appearing. Angels appear to, to uh, Zechariah, and then to Mary, and to Joseph. So three angels all of a sudden appearing. Now that wasn't, that wasn't widespread, that wasn't necessarily public knowledge. But now at his birth... An angel appears to the shepherds, and he appeared in the sky, and he lit up the sky, and he had their attention. They were afraid of him. And he said, he said, don't be afraid. I bring good tidings of joy. I have good news. A Savior is born. And he told them where they would be. And then after he made the announcement, then a host of angels, think thousands of angels in the sky, lit up the sky and sang praises to God. That was probably visible from, from quite far away, maybe even heard from far away. This is a very public announcement. So his birth 
was marked by angels. There was also a star. In my recollection of the story, as I piece it together and process through, I think the star appeared when he was born. And I think the star was the signal that the wise men saw, and having been trained by Daniel, not personally, but his teachings, they recognized that star is the marker of the Messiah. The king of the Jews has been born, and they started off on a journey. It probably took them a year, a year and a half, maybe even two years, to get to Jerusalem. They went to Jerusalem because that's kind of where the star was. And they went and they asked, where's, where's the king? Where's the new baby born king of the Jews? Well, you know the story. Eventually they wind up in Bethlehem. And somehow this star marked the very single house where Jesus was. Not the manger, but a house where Jesus was. And the star shone and the wise men came. So it was marked by angels. His birth was marked by a star. And then there's the Magi. I called them wise men a minute ago. Magi would be the correct term to call them. They weren't just smart guys who read the signs correctly. They were professional wise men. They were professional servants of the king whose job was to lead the officials and lead the king spiritually. And they knew enough of Hebrew scripture and knew enough of Daniel's teachings that when they saw the star, they recognized it. And they didn't just go, hey, look, there's a star. That means there's a king born over there. They did say that, but the next words were, load the camels, get everybody ready. We're leaving. We will not miss this event. We will travel until we find this child, and then we will worship him as God, and we will give him gifts. And they went on that journey. In a year and a half, probably, they, they found him still in Bethlehem. They, they did bow and worship him. They did offer their gifts, gifts that not only uh, looked forward to his crucifixion and identified him as king, but gifts that also paid for his trip to Egypt and back, probably sustained them while they were gone. So there's, there's the star, there's the angels, and there's the magi. And then something we, we don't talk about a lot, it's not a very fun subject to talk about, but it does mark his birth. There was an assassination attempt. Herod tried to kill Jesus. He killed all the babies in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, in his attempts, but Jesus escaped with the help of an angel and his parents. But there was an assassination attempt. So his birth was marked by these things. And then see, probably the most important thing, for the first time ever, God himself took on the form of a, of a human. And I want to read this scripture. This is Philippians 2, 6 through 8. It says, Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, and that, that very nature uh, can also be read in the form of, and, and we can read it as Jesus Christ being God. Okay, Jesus Christ being God, we know him as God the Son. So I'll add that in there. Jesus Christ, being God the Son, did not consider equality with God the Father something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. There's that phrase again, the very nature of a servant. And that word servant can actually be translated slave, okay? The humility there. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So God the Son 
became Jesus the man. God the Son humbled himself, left his place in heaven, gave up the independent use of many attributes that he had, became Jesus the man who started off as Jesus the baby. So Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, in humility became a human being. It's the only time that's ever happened. I think it's the only religion that even claims it. So his special birth, we know it's special and it's spectacular because of the prophecy that surrounded it. We know it's special and spectacular because of the events that surrounded it. We know it's special and spectacular because God actually became a human being at that moment in time. So the first expectation is completely fulfilled. Number two, if Jesus is God the Son, I would expect Jesus to have supernatural abilities. That just is common sense, right? If a supernatural being is living among us humans, that supernatural being should have supernatural powers. That's so obvious that we have an entire industry of comics and Marvel and all this stuff built on that concept. But Jesus is the real thing. He's not science fiction. He's not made up. So what supernatural abilities did he have? Well, A, he demonstrated power over nature when he turned water into wine, calmed the storm, walked on water, fed the multitudes, and the list goes on and on and on. He did all these things without effort, without fail, usually by his spoken word. Sometimes it involved a touch or some instructions. But he accomplished these things. B, Jesus demonstrated power over the spiritual when he cast out demons and forgave sin. On one occasion in particular, when the man was lowered through the roof, he said, your sins are forgiven. And then he looked at the Pharisees and he said, in order to prove to you that I have the power to forgive sins, I will also heal him. And he said, take up your mat and walk. His miracles proved who he was. He had the the ability to forgive sin and cast out demons. When he cast out demons, they left immediately. They obeyed him and they said, who is this? Why are the demons obeying him? And they should have concluded because he's God, but their conclusion was because he's one of them. See, Jesus demonstrated power over disease when he healed blindness, deafness, lameness, and leprosy. And if you remember when we studied Mark, we talked about these healings were not rub this on your arm, wrap it up, change the bandage every three days, put more ointment on it, and after a while, your leprosy will be gone. It was instantaneous replacement of dead skin with live skin. It was instantaneous regrowth of muscle that had deteriorated because of uh, a lameness. It was instantaneous hearing through ears that had not heard. Instantaneous sight through eyes that could not see. It was the regeneration. It, it wasn't over time, it was now, and it was public. There were no tricks involved. So he had power over nature, he had power over the spiritual realm, he had power over disease, and then he also demonstrated some of his attributes on specific occasions. On sometimes he read minds, if you remember reading the Gospels, if you did the Bible through a year. The Pharisees would be thinking something, and Jesus would say, um, this is what you're thinking. Here's the answer. He, the Bible would say, knowing what they were thinking, he replied to them or he said this to them. He could read minds. He transported time and space. 
and he prophesied. I think the prophesying, you can probably identify your own, but I want to read John 6.21 to you, where I get that transporting time and space. John 6.21 says, this is right after uh, he calmed the water, after he um, walked on the water and he calmed it. Verse 21 says, Then, okay, so it's right after they got in the boat, then they were willing to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Now that word immediately has to be read instantaneously. Um, it, it means like before we knew what happened. Okay, like immediately. So they're halfway across the lake. The storm is brewing. They can't get anywhere. Their paddling is not working. The sailing's not working. Here comes Jesus walking along. They freak out. He says, hey, it's me. He gets close enough. They believe it's him. They let him in the boat. And then immediately, they're at their destination, traveling through time and space, supernatural. And of course, his prophecy. So we expect a spectacularly special birth. We expect supernatural abilities. Both, both were present. Number three, I would expect Jesus to have an extraordinary message for his creation. Did he have an extraordinary message? He absolutely had an extraordinary message. Let me start with one that you might miss if you don't, if you don't understand what's being said. In John 8, 58, he says, Verily, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Now, I want you to know what they heard. You heard me say the words before Abraham was born, I am. And we went, well, yeah, okay. What they heard was before our religion was established, before God spoke to our first father, before our nation was even considered a possibility, as far back as our history goes, as far back as our religion goes, you just said you were there. And then you said, I am. So what you just said was, you were there before our nation and our faith was established, and, and you're still here. That's what they heard him say. They also heard him use the word, I am, which is how God identified himself in the burning bush. And that phrase was a name for God. And when he said, before Abraham was, I am, he was saying, you know what? I was around before any of this started. I was around before Abraham was around. I'm still around in the same capacity because you know what? I'm God. That's exactly what they heard. The evidence is the rest of the verse, or verse 59. At this, at those very words, they picked up stones to stone him. It wasn't at this they went and discussed the matter, or at this they were shocked, or at this they looked around to see what the leaders were going to do. It was at this they picked up stones to stone him. He had just said things that in their mind merited instant death. No trial necessary. And that's, that's what was going on. And of course it says uh, that he slipped away from off the temple grounds. He just hid himself from them and he slipped away, a supernatural event. So his message was quite extraordinary. I am God and I always have been. Second thing he said, which is pretty extraordinary, he said this to 
Mary and Martha, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way to salvation. I am the way to eternity. I am the way to a relationship with God. I am the truth. I'm the only truth. And I am the life. I'm the one that provides life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, not a single person, not now, not before, not in the future, no one ever gets to the Father except through me. I'm the only way you can get there. You have to go through me. And, of course, looking forward to him being the sacrifice, him raising from the dead, offering us all salvation. That's a pretty radical message. That's even radical today. You go around saying that publicly, you will draw attention to yourself. If you say Jesus is the only way you're ever going to get to heaven, you will draw attention to yourself from churches, from atheists, from pagans, from all kinds of groups, because they do not want to hear that. Because that is the very thing that separates Christianity from all the other religions. There is only one way, and it's only Jesus. That's an extraordinary message. He also taught extraordinary things in extraordinary ways. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is, is a good three chapters long. And they got to the end, and the people were amazed at his teachings and the way he taught. He taught with authority, and he taught with understanding that they had never heard before. So he had extraordinary messages, and he also delivered them in extraordinary ways. And some of the things that were taught on the Sermon on the Mount are still, even in our world, binding moral qualities that we live by. So he, was, he had a spectacularly special birth. He had supernatural abilities. He had an extraordinary message. What else would I expect? I'd expect that Jesus to have a great deal of influence. I would expect that if God the Son came to live on the earth and lived his life, he would have a great deal of influence. Well, we can see his influence in Israel because whenever he came to town, people gathered around him. Not just a few people, but hundreds of people to thousands of people. Remember, he fed the 4,000 and he fed the 5,000. So many people gathered that there wasn't room for them. He had to preach from a boat in the water a few times. Crowds and multitudes gathered everywhere he went. Even when he tried to sneak into town, even when he stayed on the outskirts of town, even when he told people, don't tell anyone I'm here, I need to rest. Even on those occasions, he gathered multitudes to him. Uh, B, Jerusalem was ready to make him king at his triumphal entry. They were just saying, wow, here comes a great guy. Everybody notice him, please. This is cool. They were, they were shouting, here comes our king. And if the man who could heal the blind, heal the deaf, heal anything he wanted to heal, who could turn water into wine and feed the 5,000, if that man had said to them, yes, make me king, they would have rioted on the spot, having faith in his power, and he would have became king of Israel. That was not his plan, though. But that's how much influence he had. They were ready, willing, and able to do that. See, his teachings were beyond any other teaching. And they became a backbone of morality even today. I kind of mentioned that already. And the D, the calendar, literally revolves around Jesus' life and death. You might say he's the man who split time. That's the booklet we handed out at Christmas. So he did have a tremendous amount of influence. Number five, I would expect Jesus to achieve an accomplishment that no human could achieve. That makes total sense. 
Oh, did he do that? Well, A, Jesus made salvation possible for mankind. He, he died on the cross as a sinless human being with the power of the Son of God so that he could offer forgiveness to all mankind, to anyone who would believe and accept his forgiveness. To the, the man on the cross, to the people in Ephesus, to all of us. He made salvation possible. That's an accomplishment that isn't really anywhere else. And then B, his resurrection proved who he was and who he claimed to be, and he had the power and authority to match his identity. He said, I am the Son of God. I have the power over life and death. And then he rose from the dead, proving who he was. Many people, at the moment they saw him, believed, including James, his half-brother, and Saul, who became Paul. His resurrection, an accomplishment that no other had done. Others had been raised from the dead by Jesus and by a prophet or something like that, but no one had raised themselves from the dead. We accomplished something that no one else did. And then number six, I would expect Jesus to have the power over life and death, which we've kind of mentioned already, but just for review. A, Jesus raised a widow's son to life during his own funeral march. That would be a pretty dramatic time to raise someone from the dead during their funeral. Okay? That happened. You can read about that in Luke. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. You can read about that in Mark. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after being dead four days, and that's important because he stunketh at that point in time. And, and the, the, the Jews believe that on the fourth day, the spirit left the body, so he was dead dead, and his smell proved it, because Jesus raised him from the dead. And then Jesus raised himself from the dead three days after his crucifixion. And it'd be good to read that, that account in Corinthians there, because it's talking in reflection. Here's a big idea. Uh, pretty obvious where we're going here, but here's the big idea. If Jesus were truly the Son of God, taking on human flesh from infancy through adulthood, then we would expect his birth to be miraculous and marked in history, that he would have supernatural abilities over both the physical and spiritual worlds, that his message would be wonderful, complete, life-changing, and world-impacting, and that he would achieve something no one else ever has or will achieve that he would have power over life and death. And this is exactly what Jesus was, what Jesus said, and what Jesus did. So why, why is this the message that I was so excited about? Why is it the message that can't be forgotten even though it's not Christmas anymore? Well, we need to be reminded of these things because we forget it easily. We forget some of the details. We forget some of the facts. We forget to reflect on the details and the facts. We forget to realize who God is and then realize that this very God has been interested in me and my life, hears my prayers, answers them, directs me, provides for me, gives me promises, gives me a hope and a future. We need to be reminded who Jesus is. You might need to be reminded of these things so you can share them with someone else. So when you have a conversation at work or at school or at home with someone who's trying to figure out who Jesus is, and you can say, well, what would we expect him to be? We would expect these things. You can pull out your notes. You say, and here, here they are, and here's the scriptures that talk about them. 
And someone may have needed to hear this because they haven't embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior yet. Because they have not had a conversation with God and said, you know what, God? I I need to be 100% on board with you. I'm not going to rely on my parents. I'm not going to rely on my good deeds. I'm not going to rely on what I can accomplish in my lifetime. I'm going to rely on you. Because one of your accomplishments was to come and die on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. And I understand that without forgiveness, I am required to spend eternity in hell. With your forgiveness, I'm given the privilege of spending eternity with you in heaven. Now I'm going to offer a prayer today. And if anyone has not received Christ as their Savior, if anyone doubts whether they've received Christ as their Savior, if anyone has any question, and they don't want to have that question, and they don't want to have that doubt, then right now would be a great opportunity to pray and tell God, I believe you are God, Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe you lived on this earth, born of a virgin, died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead, proving who you were. And I believe that because you have offered me salvation, I can receive it. So I accept your gift of forgiveness. And with that gift of forgiveness, I commit to live my life for you. I will make you Lord. You'll be my Lord and Savior. I'll put you in charge. I will now serve you. So if you want to pray that prayer, if you've never prayed that prayer and you want to, I'm just going to lead you. And and you can pray it silently. You can pray it out loud. It doesn't matter. I don't need to hear it. No one else needs to hear it. Only God needs to hear it. But if out loud is how it works for you, then that's great. But I'm going to pray the prayer, and I'm going to pray it in a way so you can repeat after me. But you don't say it to me. You say it to God. And if in your heart you believe this, and you mean it, and you say it to God, then in that very instant, that very moment in time, then you become a believer. You become a saved person. So let's, let's go through that prayer. When that prayer's over, then I'll close this. So here's the prayer of salvation. Dear Jesus, I am indeed a sinner. I admit that to you right now. I believe you are God the Son, that you were born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, and died on the cross for my sins. I also believe that you rose again on the third day, proving that you were God, proving that you could forgive sin, and proving that you could give us a resurrection. I accept your gift of forgiveness right now. I thank you for forgiving me, and with my forgiveness, I commit to living my life for you. I declare you Lord and Savior. You've always been Lord, and Savior has always been available. Now I accept that, and I embrace that. You are Lord and Savior, and I will live for you. Thank you for forgiving my sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Father, I don't know if anyone prayed that or not. I hope somebody did. Maybe here, maybe when they watch it online. Maybe this is just the example we need to go and share it with someone else. But Father, thank you for fulfilling all the expectations of what a Messiah would look like and what God the Son would look like if he became a human being. Thank you for really making it super obvious. 
that you entered into our world so that we could enter into your world. And so, Father, we commit our lives to you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. Help us who have already become believers to live like a believer and to serve you well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.